You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. On 1 July this year, new rules came into effect to allow self-managed super funds to have up to six members. And while the industry's initial reaction to these measures were subdued, to say the least, since the rules have come in, there has been increasing speculation that they could have a role to play in SMSF succession planning strategies as members age. I'm your host, Craig Day, and here to discuss this quite interesting issue is Tim Sanders, Sanderson, one of my senior senior. <laughs> If I could speak, one of my senior technical services managers in the team. G'day, Tim. Hi, Craig. How's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. Now, six-member SMSFs. So do you want to actually outline what's happened here? Yeah, so this this came about as a result, I think it was the 2018 federal budget that the government uh, proposed increasing the uh, allowable membership for small super funds, so SMSFs and also small APRA funds. So that ended up being legislated um, and applies from 1 July 2021. So the SMSF definition has now changed to um, previously being able to have a maximum of four members to now having a maximum of six members. Um, that's that's also There's also been a range of other consequential changes to various bits of legislation just to recognise that small super funds are now maximum of six rather than maximum of four. Right. So I think some of those changes were to things like 1322C trust rules because that had some limitations around um, those rules applying to to exactly. funds with no, no more than four members. I, I think also there was a lot of changes there because um, both the tax and super rules, when they were dealing with rules that um, or sections that applied to both small APRA funds and self-managed super funds, um, there were some definitions there about what a small superannuation fund was, so we need to go and change all those. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so why do we think the government's actually done this? Well, look, I, th- I think from a policy perspective, it, it does allow some more flexibility, so uh, more circumstances where it may make sense to to allow an SMSF sort of context with a larger number of members. But also, I think probably from a political perspective, it, it is, um, you know, it's an SMSF-friendly uh, measure, if you like, so I think that may have played a part also. Yeah, because when when you actually think about when these rules were first introduced, it was it was back prior to the last election, and if we can remember back back pre COVID, God, can you imagine such a time? Um, there was that that Labor Party policy to make imputation credits non refundable, and that was going to have a big impact on self managed super funds, specifically self managed super funds that were purely in retirement phase, because all of those franking credits would no longer get refunded. Um, and I remember thinking to myself at the time, I, I do wonder whether this is policy is more about 
um, you know, the, the government standing up and saying, hey, look, you know, the Labor Party is being nasty to your self-managed super fund, but we're the friends of self-managed super funds. Um, for example, we're allowing funds to have now up to six members. So I, I think there was a political element. Yeah, probably a bit of a making the choice very stark between the two between the two yeah, parties. Yeah. Now I I mentioned it in my intro there in terms of the industry reaction. So do you want to summarise what it initially was and actually what it's kind of morphed into? Yeah, look, I, I think um, we, along with probably the rest of the industry, initially thought, well. How many people are actually going to want to take advantage of this or be impacted by it? Um, we really didn't expect to see much demand at all. And looking at the you know the stats that you um, you know looking at how many percentage of SMSS are actually at the upper end, it's only really seven percent at the moment that are three or four members. So the vast mm-hmm. majority are, are two members followed by a single member funds. So for that reason, we really weren't expecting much demand. But, you know, subsequently, um, I guess thinking about that more and getting more feedback on that, um, it is important to note the SMSF membership overall is ageing. So there may be an interest. And, and look, this applies really irrespective of the increase to six members. This may apply for, you know, two-member funds considering adding even an additional one or two members. I think the logic mm-hmm. applies there as well. Um, yep. So using the rules to potentially admit admit um, the next generation, so kids, for example, as part of an SMSF succession plan. Yeah, so I, I, I take your point there, but I, I wonder whether the six-member thing has really brought that up because you might have, you know, mum and dad ageing and then a self-managed super fund and they may have three kids, right? Now, if they were to bring two of those kids in to help them run the fund and leave the third one out, what does that do for, you know, estate planning and, you know, family harmony and all that sort of stuff? So I wonder here whether the ability to actually bring in all of your kids and help them help you run your fund is an aspect. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. So where there's situations where there's more than two kids, this six-member fund provides for that, you know, an easier way of providing equity. Yeah. Now, you mentioned there the SMSF membership is ageing. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so if we just look back at the um, the statistics five years ago versus now um, and look at the, let's say, members aged 75 or over. Now, five years ago, back in June 2015, I think the stat was from, that was only 8.8%. And that's actually mm-hmm. grown by five percentage points to 13.8% by June last year. So, um, yeah, obviously, SMSFs in general continue to grow, but that older member cohort is certainly growing at a much faster pace than the growth of SMSFs in general. Yeah. So that's, wow, that's, you know, 5% in five years. That's a significant increase. So all of a sudden now we're seeing more and more members getting up over 75. And so I suppose that's the point in time that, you know, you you start to have questions about capacity or energy or the simple want to continue to manage your own self-managed super fund in it. And it's that point in time um, that, you know, the question comes up, do we maintain our self-managed super fund? And I, and I know I've certainly had that conversation with, with my parents around, um, you know, their self-managed super funds and, and do we keep that running? Now, I suppose from an advisor's perspective there, 
Um, we've got a growing number of members finding it more getting older and therefore potentially starting to ask these questions or the advisor may actually see it in their clients, seeing their loss of capacity and thinking, goodness, do we keep this self-managed super fund running or is it time to pull up stumps and head back to public offer land? Um, so I would imagine with this that there's not only this new rule comes in, so you've got advisors needing to be across it, but you've also got this growing demand for the need for SMSF succession advice coming into play. So is it going to be, do we wind up and go back to a public offer fund or do we potentially think about bringing the kids in to help us run the fund? So yeah. I think that's really quite interesting. Yeah, I think whether it's due to, um, you know, the energy of the older trustees or potential capacity issues, um, advisors really should expect more demand in, in that SMSF succession area going forward. And so probably advisors mm. really need to start now about thinking about what they potentially need to consider for uh, when that demand comes. Yeah. So I would imagine here that an advisor sitting there thinking about and how they're going to frame or what they're going to advise their clients, um, you've got to compare, you know, one, winding up and heading back to large fund land um, or maintaining the fund and admitting the members. Now, why would a member really want to retain the fund? Like why, if, I'm, if I'm thinking about myself as an advisor, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the needs and objectives. Um, and you might have some clients saying, no, I want to retain my fund. Why, why would you, like, what, in what sort of circumstances would you think that actually it's good advice to retain the fund and admit the kids rather than wind up? Yeah, so I think there's there's a, a range of things that need to be considered together um, when providing advice in that area. But I guess firstly, from a you know benefit of maintaining an SMSF, um, from an investment or tax perspective, there may be existing assets in the fund that are generating good returns and that can't be transferred to a large fund. So there may be some really, a really good property or some really good listed shares in the fund that, that would need to be sold down if they're going to exit the SMSF. There may mm -hmm. be a commercial property that is being leased to the family business. And so obviously it's, it's very advantageous to maintain that or a problem yep. if it wasn't maintained. And also there, there might be... Um, uh, particularly for um, older members who have transfer balance cap issues and as a result, uh, not issues, but have run up against their transfer balance cap. So they've also got accumulation accounts in the fund. There may be some assets with large unrealised capital gains there and to exit the fund and sell down those assets, there may be some pretty huge CGT implications of doing so. Well, yeah, that's interesting because when you think about it, uh, re replay back to 1 July 2017 and we did have those transitional CGT measures, so that, that kind of did reset a lot of cost bases. So for those assets that were going to remain accumulation assets, I, I suppose there's – but now, well, you know, we're a couple of years in and we have seen, depending on – you know, if you had a, a self-managed fund that went out and bought – some sort of uh, direct property, you know, in the teeth of COVID when COVID first hit around June last year, they're potentially seeing quite significant increases in capital with significant capital gains. So even with those transitional CGT measures and the resetting of cost base, you could well have, um, you know, those kinds of funds being staring down the, the barrel at a large CGT liability if they were to, to wind up because obviously they're going to have to dispose of the assets either via in species transfer over to something to like a, a super wrap or just to sell the assets to go to something like a, a large master trust kind of fund. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Um, what about, 
you know, I would imagine a lot of these clients are going to be retired and also running income streams. So, you know, a lot of income streams have grandfathered status. What about those types of income streams? Yeah, so there's a range of income stream uh, considerations. So firstly, uh, the SMSF might have um, a a 100% uh, or 50% asset test exempt defined benefit pension, so a lifetime or life expectancy. They may also have a 50% asset, asset test exempt term allocated pension. And the problem with um, you know, commuting that and rolling it across to a, a large super fund, um, the asset test exempt status, depending on the circumstances, may well be lost and potentially significant social security uh, issues with doing that. Mm. Um, also, I guess moving on from you know the complying pensions, there might be uh, people in SMSFs with um, account-based pensions that were commenced prior to January 2015 and are, are grandfathered for Social Security income test and Commonwealth Seniors health card purposes, uh, meaning mm. they're not subject to deeming. And so um, if we were to commute those and roll them to a large fund, there's really no relief there they just become deemed for income test purposes yeah i remember i I mentioned there i've had this conversation (laughs) with my parents and i was talking about you know do we really want to keep this self-managed super fund running and you know they were kind of into it but my, my parents are not on the age pension they were very good savers throughout their life and um but then i did warn them i said but you know because you started your your pensions before 1 january 2015 they would actually start assessing your income now for Commonwealth Seniors Health Card purposes and you probably lose entitlement to that. And it was just like I suggested they shove their head in a, a vat of boiling oil. It was just like, what are you talking about? It's just like because my parents, they don't get the age pension. So that Commonwealth Seniors Health Card to them is like their age pension. It's just their little entitlement that they got out of working for all of those years. So anything that was going to put... That health card at risk is uh, nah. Yeah, you don't, don't want to lose it unnecessarily. <laughs> no, no. So for them, no, not where you are keeping this self-managed super running because I want to maintain my Commonwealth Seniors health card. Yeah. Um, what about if we've got clients with very large complying pensions? Yeah, so um, I guess one of the options there, if we wanted to get out of the SMSF, would be to roll over to a, a complying pension, let's say a tap in a, a retail fund. Um, now, the problem there from a transfer balance cap perspective is that new tap's not going to be a cap to find benefit income stream. And there may be, you know, very large amounts backing that complying pension. For example, if it's a a complying lifetime pension, um, that can create a huge excess transfer balance uh, cap problem. Um, Now, there uh, there is proposed legislation to allow um, a solution to partially commute income streams in those situations. Uh, the TAP, for example, but we haven't seen any legislation or further detail about that, that yet. So that's a bit up in the air. Um, and, and probably it's also worth mentioning, we won't go into it in detail, but there, there was proposed in the most recent federal budget uh, effectively a two-year window where people will be able to move out of complying income streams, including reserves, into, for example, an account-based pension. Um, now, that's proposed only as well at the moment. Um, that may allow some relief, but there's going to be a range of issues to consider there. Uh, we'll write something on that if it does become law, but also we do have a podcast which which discusses further issues on that. Yeah, we did, I think, something a um, couple of a month or two back on the uh, on the federal budget announcement. So if you've got an interest in those, go and have a listen to that podcast. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I remember 
I was chatting not a, a while ago. It was actually in context of those budget changes, actually, and I was chatting to an advisor. Um, and you don't you don't see this very often, but this client uh, advisor had a client that had a self managed super fund with a forty million dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, complying lifetime pension running. So they were looking at those potential proposals. Um, and so there's lots of issues around the allocation of reserves is going to be accessible and all this sort of stuff. But one of their issues as well is that because cap defined benefit income streams, which are complying lifetime pension is, counts up to the, the transfer balance cap but not beyond, that meant that they were sitting there with $40 million in essentially in the tax-free pension phase. But if they were to commute and roll that over and commence an account-based pension, well, that account-based pension is subject to the transfer balance cap, and if you commence anything over and above that, then it's going to be excessive. So they were going to go from forty million dollars in the um, in the tax-free pension phase to one point six million, and the residual I would imagine left in the accumulation phase. So um, the same kind of situation would occur here if they were if they were. Com- considering commuting and rolling over to a term allocated pension that is not going to be a cap defined benefit income stream. Yeah. You're going to end up with a $40 million tax. <laughs> um, but uh, in that situation, that that's, you know, you've got that defined benefit income cap to play. You've got also the, the excess transfer balance cap liability. So is it 15% or 30% tax? Uh, Really, really complicated. So I could imagine faced with all of that, you just go, no, thank you very much. I'm quite happy with my self-managed super fund. Let's leave it where it is. Um, I would imagine though there would be some other benefits out of having, you know, younger members come into the fund. Do you want to run through some of those? Yeah, sure. So um, probably one of the one of the, the key ones, particularly for funds that might have a majority of illiquid assets. So let's say they've got one large property taking out most of the fund. Um, they've got to make pension payments and, you know, bringing in other younger members who are making contributions and they're in accumulation phase, the ability to use those cash contributions being made to fund those pension payments, um, that, that can be a real real potential benefit. Yeah, I can, I can imagine there if you've got one large lumpy asset and as as the existing members get older, not only do we have to pay down those minimum payments, but those minimum payments start to jump up, right? So if, if we ignore the, the current halving, at some point in time, you know, the level of income that you've got to pay out is going to actually exceed the, the revenue being produced by that particular asset. So where do you get your liquidity from? Because it's not like I'm, I'm going to be able to go in and sell the bathroom of my commercial <laughs> property. So, so bringing those extra members in does, if they're assuming they're rolling over benefits or making contributions to the fund, then that might provide that really important liquidity to allow you to continue to pay those pensions without having to sell. Exactly. And, and look, other members coming in as well, that, uh, some other benefits, I mean, it allows increasing diversification. So again, if you've got one large asset, those other members coming in, we can invest that in more diversified asset classes, for example. Um, it could assist with business succession planning, as we kind of touched on before, particularly if there's a you know a commercial property in the fund being leased to a, a related business. And also, uh, uh, sorry, actually, no, okay. before you go on, so how would how would that work? Uh, so how would so if I've got uh, let me think about that. So if we've got a two member fund, let's say that there's a commercial property leased to the family business. Um, 
what we do is we bring the kids in. So they're rolling their benefits across. Yep, so they're rolling cash across. They're more- rolling cash across. So then I suppose that effectively, although we don't attribute assets to particular members unless we're going to have some sort of segregated pool. Correct. But that would then give the fund the ability to say, okay, we've let's say we've got a property worth a million dollars. We've now got cash rollovers worth a million dollars. Um, it would give those pension members, if they did want to go off and buy some assets that were going to generate income or, or even potentially roll out of the fund by bringing the younger kids in, you swap the cash for the property. So the mum and dad, you know, if we were to going to roll them out, they take the cash and roll out and the kids are then left in the self-managed super fund with the property. So you resolve that, that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yep. and, and that can apply, you know, whether the older people want to roll out or whether a death benefit becomes payable in the future, for example. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then well, probably the final one, just bringing in more members means more benefits in the fund overall, particularly where there's, you know, reasonable amounts being rolled in as part of that. So that in, that allows increased scale and reduced costs overall. So the fund might have a range of fixed costs. They're going to be shared between more members and among there'll be a lower percentage as a, as a percentage of the total fund assets. Yeah, cool. Now, that all sounds fabulous, right? Um, but I'm sure, <laughs> bringing, I'm sure. <laughs> bringing the adult kids is going to come with some disadvantages and some risks, um, some pretty r- real risks, if you ask me. Um, do we want to start going through them? So what's the first kind of issue that we need to think about by bringing younger people in, so potentially up to four younger people in, or maybe even five if you've got a single member fund already, um, that have very different ages, risk profiles, needs and objectives to the existing members. So yeah, so I would imagine. that's right. So you might have, you know, two late 20-year-olds coming in to share a fund with two, you know, 60-year-olds. They might have very different risk profiles, you know, need for income from their, their member benefits. Uh, and so um, that really needs to be considered in respect to the fund's investment strategy, which would have been set up for those existing members only. Um, mm-hmm. Now, under the investment strategy, the fund would need to really come up with one strategy that meets the needs of both mem- of all groups of members. That's going to be quite difficult in a particular yeah. situation where you've got very different um, ages um, and sort of stages of of benefit payment. Or well, you've got two members that are probably focused on capital security and income and the other ones that are focused on, you know, capital growth and risk. Yeah. Risk. And look in a lot of in a lot of cases it's it's really not going to be possible to come up with one investment strategy that meets that overall need. Um, now where where that can't be done, um, the fund's going to have to consider potentially multiple investment strategies, uh, one for each cohort of members, if you like, and multiple investment pools essentially um, <laughs> underlying those two investment strategies yeah. for those members' needs. So it's getting more complicated. And can you just imagine going to the accountant saying, I want to run two different investment pools with two different tax treatments and they're just going to look at you and either say no or start, you know, rubbing their hands in glee yeah. in terms of the, the extra costs or extra yeah. charges they're going to be able to build the fund for. Um, actually, that that raises an important issue there. Um, what about investment returns and tax? So I would imagine that if we're currently sitting there with a self-managed fund, two members, 
all of their benefits in retirement phase. So the, the fund is effectively segregated, okay, unless you've got disregarded small fund assets because we've got members over 1.6 million. But let's say we don't, right? Um, that's a segregated fund. And then all of a sudden, let's say we've got three or four kids that now start rolling in, you know, large balance or reasonably large balances. I mean, that initially that's going to result in the fund converting to the unsegregated method, right? So there's already additional costs there. But what does that mean from an investment return perspective for the pension members? Is that going to be bad news or no change or how does that work? Yeah, well, I think it really depends um, in this situation how that particular fund allocates tax. And I think this can, in a practical sense, it can vary depending on you know, what, what provider is used for that purpose. So it may actually vary from fund to fund. But depending on how that fund allocates tax, uh, those accumulation members having rolled in could actually impact the after-tax returns of the pension members as well as those accumulation members. Um, and so the, the reason that would happen is because tax, uh, in, tax on investment returns is a, a general fund expense that's not necessarily to any specific member. And so it may, from the fund's perspective, be deducted from those investment returns uh, before those net investment returns, if you like, are allocated to all fund members, including those pension members. So by doing it that way, those pension members' returns may actually be reduced compared to what would have happened if it had just been a pension-only fund. Yeah, I remember when the first time I started thinking about this, I was just like quite shocked, right? I was just like... Surely not. I mean, how could a pension returns are tax-free? You always get told this, right? Pension assets are tax-free. But where the fund is using the unsegregated method, so you're using the exempt current pension income proportion, so you go off to an actuary and they come back and tell you, let's say, 80% of the fund's income is exempt. Well, that means 20% is taxable, and that is a general fund expense. So the tax on that 20% or the income on that 20%, um, sorry, yes, the income on the tax sorry, the tax on the income, if I can get this right, um, that is a general fund expense. It doesn't, if, if you've got all members in the same investment pool, then that tax liability relates to the fund as a whole, not to any particular member, which is different from something like contributions tax, right? Because contributions tax, if I make a $100 contribution, sorry, personal deductible contribution to my fund, that means the fund's that gets included in the fund's income. So therefore, the fund has a $15 liability that is clearly related to me, yep. right? So therefore, I deduct that from my account. But in this situation, the fund's tax liability doesn't relate to any particular member if we're all in the same pool. So therefore, we have to allocate those tax costs to the investment return before we start allocating out to members proportionally. So what you're going to see there, depending on which you know software platform your administrator uses, what you're going to see there is um, is that the the pension or the the returns, the investment returns, of the pension members are going to be reduced by tax. Okay, now not all of them do that. So you've got the big guys, you've got the super corps, you've got the BGLs, and you've got the class. And we've had a look at uh, across these, and some of them do it one way, and some of them do it another. Right. So some would say, no, we're allocating this is a general fund expense, fair and reasonable. Um, we're allocating that to the to fund's gross return, and then we're uh, allocating those returns after tax to across all the members, right? Um, 
So that would impact them there. Now, there are other platforms that do it differently and they say, no, 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 we, we would only ever allocate a tax liability to the accumulation members. But that also has disadvantages to it, if you ask me. So if, let's just say we've got a, a fund that's held an asset for, let's say, 20 years and it's got a very large accumulated capital gain on it and then we bring the, the, the kids in and they're in the fund for, let's say, two months and then we go and sell that asset and then the trustee goes and allocates all of the CDT liability yeah. back to them. I could imagine they're not going to be very happy. Not, not a great welcome to the fund, is it? <laughs> no, no. So advisors are going to have to be across this. The other thing here is interesting is what about franking credits? Yeah, so, so again, I think it's going to depend on how the fund accounts for that. So going by the way we first looked at it, where tax is just a general fund expense, then in that situation the fund would be able to use its franking credits to offset any tax liability that it's otherwise going to have. And then any franking credits, to the extent that franking credits exceed that tax, it's kind of a refund to the fund and that would just be allocated um, like an investment return, if you like, to the fund, Um, Mm -hmm. again, proportionally among the members. So the the way of looking at that would be the pension members aren't necessarily getting um, a full share of all of the franking credits um, based on their proportion of assets in the fund because it's been used to offset that tax liability. Which benefits the accumulation members. That's right. Um, whereas the, potentially the other way we were looking at it, for funds that do allocate tax only to accumulation members, um, then potentially uh, um, it may be done in a way that allows the pension members to benefit fully from their share of the franking credits. Yeah, yeah. So this is quite different from large funds because large funds absolutely do. they What what they do between the different investment options and pension accumulation, you, you get the basically the accumulation um, options buying the franking credits off the pension options. So um, because if the, fad, if the fund is in a tax position, we still want to make sure the pension members get the benefit of those franking credits. So we just get the accumulation members to buy them, right? But that doesn't happen typically in SMSF administration or tax calculations, as far as we can tell. So, um, I, and once again, bringing back my parents, they absolutely look at those refundable franking credits as a return. And if I was to say, well, let me roll in, you know, <laughs> I have half a million dollars in super, but let me roll in my half a million dollars in super. And by the way, you no longer get any franking credit refunds. They would be looking at me going, what? <laughs> well, you give us our franking. No, so that's exactly, you really get. Now, some people, some funds won't have a problem with that. Right, that that's just yep, great. Bring the kids in; they're going to help us. Oh well, you know, I've got enough super that will help them through and save enough for their retirement. Great, but other other situations, the parents will say, "What? No way!" You know, so these kinds of issues absolutely need to be considered and communicated. Because can you imagine if you did all of this and you recommended you bring the kids in, and then all of a sudden your clients were no longer getting their accumulate their, their franking credit refunds, and the kids got the benefit of all those franking credits. You, you might get a, a harsh question to answer there from, from your clients. Um, what, about, um, what about other disadvantages here? I would imagine we've got loss of control, really. Yeah, that's right. So uh, obviously with other members coming in, there's going to be more trustees or directors of a corporate trustee. Um, for example, if you had two existing uh, older members, we bring in three new members. Um, then depending on how the voting in the fund works, potentially mm. 
younger members can be outvoting those older members, you know, whether it's coming down to investment decisions of the fund, whether it comes down to decisions in relation to death benefit payments. Um, certainly in that situation, um, there's increased potential for dispute uh, by bringing, bringing in additional members. And yeah, I think, well, the, the simple fact you've got more people, so therefore yeah. there has to be yeah, that's true. risk of dispute. Yeah. I mean, it just goes with the number of people. Yeah, the other thing there yeah. is around those investment decisions, I think that's really quite important because, you know, there might be assets in there that the younger generation just don't see any future in. And but the but the parents have that's that asset has done them you know so it comes back to that behavioural finance kind of thing that's been a fantastic investment for us but they're not really they're basing it on what it's done in the past not what it's going to do in the future and then the incomes come in so no we don't want it we're going to outvote you to sell it God you can imagine Probably how that would go down. For investing in cryptocurrency and those sorts yeah. of newer investments. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, um, so I think probably a good point to make as well is in relation to voting and control, it, it's probably going to be very important to look in the in the trustee, for example, about exactly how voting is going to work when additional members come in. So is it one vote per trustee or is it voting based on balances in the fund, for example? Um, that's going to be an important factor as well. Yeah, actually, that's a really important point because, you know, I have looked at a lot of deeds in my time and I, I can remember seeing one deed that um, they changed how their deed operated and they, they went from, um, you know, for death benefit decisions just needed to be a majority, um, which would, in this case, the kids could potentially now over, <laughs> let's say mum passes away um, and dad's the second spouse and the kids come in and say, no, well, sorry, you're not getting the death benefit, we're paying it to us. Um, whew, can you imagine that? Um, also, I would imagine here, um, I, I did see a deed that got amended once and, and what it basically said is in relation to any sort of trustee decision, it's a majority other than death benefit decisions, in which case it has to be a unanimous decision. So I think that would really be an important thing, not only to have a look at, you know, the, all of these cons and pros and disadvantages, but if you're going to bring the kids, you've got to go back in and have a look at those voting rules and say, do we want it as a simple majority or do we actually want to base it on majority decision or a two-thirds majority or something like that to say that the parents can't be outvoted? I think that would be a really important thing to do. Yeah, and, and probably the other, another potential disadvantage in, in you know, bringing in younger members w would be um, the risk of those children being brought in, for example, um, the change in their circumstances. So if they become bankrupt, for example, uh -huh. uh, or they go through a cool. breakdown, in both of those yeah. situations, potentially assets are going to have to be sold and paid out of the fund. Um, and so is the fund you know, ready for that risk? Are there assets that can potentially be sold down for that? Or is that too much yeah. for the fund? The fund realising capital gains tax liability because one of your kids needs to pay out some money to the daughter-in-law or son-in-law that you really don't like. <laughs> that would be just the ultimate kick in the teeth, wouldn't it? Um, now, let's say we're going to want to do this, right? What are you going to really need to... So we've just talked about one issue. Have a look at those voting clauses in the deed. What else do we need to have a look at? Yeah, so I think... Um a corporate trustee in this situation, if the fund doesn't already have one, may become quite important because there's a range of state and territory trust rules uh, in a lot of cases which have a maximum, allow trust to have a maximum of four trustees. 
and SMSFs being trusts would have to com- comply with those rules. Um, so if you're going to have a six-member fund, for example, that state may not let you have six individual trustees. So a corporate trustee may be um, really the only way of doing it uh, in those situations. So consider going to a corporate trustee if, if the fund doesn't have one already. Yeah. I saw an analysis of that. I can't remember where I read this article. And they were going through each state and looking at what the restrictions around the number of individual trustees you could have. And there were some that were just straight out, like four maximum, no further discussion entered into. Others were a little bit more vague and they said, well, yes, there's this general concept of a maximum of four, but it would then depend on the the rules within your own trust about whether you could have additional individual trustees. So that then said to me, or as it was called out at the bottom of the article, you're going to need to go and get advice if you want individual trustees. And it's like, by getting individual advice, just go a corporate trustee. Yeah. I mean, corporate trustees are already advised for, you know, two-member funds. You need one probably for a single-member fund. Um, they're recommended for two or more member funds. If you want to add even more members means there's more reason. Yes, yet to another reason why you should have a corporate trustee. So, yeah, <laughs> don't go and get advice, just convert to a corporate trustee is essentially yeah. what and we're saying here. Uh, it's going to be important with the corporate trustee to review the company's constitution. So consider things like are you going to issue new shares to the, oh, yeah. the new um, directors in addition to the, the existing directors? Um, and as we were talking about with the risk profiles earlier on, um, reviewing that fund's investment strategy, can it meet the needs of all of the new members and the existing members? And if not, um, it, it's going to be necessary to put in place multiple strategies um, where that's required. And all the costs involved in that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what else? Is there anything else? Well, I think it gets down to the control issue that we were talking about before a critical issue is going to be reviewing um, those older particularly the older existing members uh, estate planning scenarios mm-hmm. within the fund so um, the risk of future trustee discretion resulting in bad outcomes I think considering a binding death benefit nomination and ensuring that it meets all of the requirements to be binding in the fund's rules is going to be really important to help protect yeah. those older members in, in the case that they pass away. Yeah, just remove any trustee discretion so they may be able to outvote you, but there's a binding death benefit nomination there saying the death benefit goes to mum or dad. End of story. All right, Tim, I think that pretty much sums it all up. Thanks for thanks, thanks for participating. No problem. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.